Welcome to Body Signals, a Cygnos podcast. I'm your host, Bill Tanser, Chief Data Scientist here at Cygnos. This is Season 4, Episode 7, CGM Insights from Primary Care Physician, Dr. Rasham Udamchandani. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Udamchandani, or Dr. Yu, for a discussion about her insights, both treating pre-diabetic and type 2 diabetic patients as a primary care physician. On this episode, we discuss advice that Dr. Yu gives her patients about managing their glucose, the high incidence of diabetes in Southeast Asian populations, glucose and skin conditions and aging, and Dr. Yu's own experience wearing Cygnos in her top aha moments. This and so much more. A brief disclaimer, Dr. Udam Chandani's appearance on this show and her statements are meant for educational purposes only. No doctor-patient relationship is established by her appearance on Body Signals. Should you have any questions on today's topics, you should consult with your own healthcare provider. Now on to today's show. And we're live, and we are so thrilled to have Dr. Udam Chandani with us. She is a family physician, as I mentioned in the intro, and we're going to talk about some really interesting things. We're going to talk about how, as a clinician, she treats people that are type 2 diabetics and maybe pre-diabetic. We're going to talk about something that we touched on briefly in another episode with uh, Dr. Sunil Kolawad, and that is the incidence of diabetes in South Asian populations. Uh, We're going to talk about some skin issues, which we've never talked about uh, on this episode And probably one of my favorite things to talk to a clinician about is Dr. Yu is actually wearing Cygnos, and I love to discuss some of the insights that she's gotten uh, on herself from from looking at her glucose data. So, Doc, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's so great to have you, and I'm really, really excited to have a, a frontline family practitioner on the show. Because there is a, I had a personal experience, I think I may have relayed this on a previous episode, but I think this is a great jumping off point. I went to my doctor for a checkup, and he took you know, some, some blood, he took my fasting glucose, and he came back, he said, your fasting glucose is 99, you're right on the edge of being pre-diabetic, uh, you got to do something about that, essentially is what he told me. And I said, what doc, what do I do? And he says, well... Uh, maybe just lose some weight. And I said, how? And he said, I don't know. I'm a doctor. Uh, Lose some weight. Uh, I would start there. Exercise. I'm already exercising, doctor. So uh, I wonder if you face this as a clinician. Do you have patients coming to you that you feel like might be on the edge or they're pre-diabetic? And what type of advice do you give your patients? Yes, I see it all the time. I would say uh, at least 70 or 80% of my patients are usually in the pre-diabetic range or at least meet criteria for metabolic syndrome. 70 to 80%. Yes, yes. Uh, And even if they, even if I'm not testing it, they already show signs and symptoms that they have already some of the risk factors and some of the criteria, not all to reach metabolic syndrome. So I think that is quite outstanding of a number. And in medical school, we were taught to, you know, use the line diet and exercise. I used to write that in my note. I can't even tell you how many times in residency. And it was just a line I used, but I never actually explained to them how to do it. 
And the more I dove into it, the more, you know, I had my own health experiences and I just wanted to understand, like, I can't let them go home with just this line. I, I need to give them more than that. I need to teach them how to read labels. I need to teach them how to exercise, when to exercise. Um, in addition to that, just teaching them how to incorporate their cultural you know, differences and, you know, maybe eating, um, not eating tortillas all the time or finding ways to make healthier tortillas. Because I had a very large Hispanic population where I did my residency and it became so much more meaningful, fulfilling. And I, I remember like patients that would come back and I would reverse their diabetes with just nutrition. And I was only in residency. They would come and give me a hug. And it's just at that point, you're like, okay, I'm doing something right. I'm on, I'm on this path uh, to, you know, this discovery of nutrition. And I just wanted to dive in deeper and deeper. Uh, but then I moved uh, to Northern California and joined Kaiser, which again, because the model is, it only allows for us to have what, 20 minutes with a patient by the time, you know, my MA rooms the patient, it's seven minutes in, I only have maybe another seven minutes to talk to them. And then I have to write my note. I'm not really getting anywhere with them. And so that was extremely frustrating, uh, which is why I also got burnt out. But going back to your question of, you know, what do I tell my patients? There's so much that goes to it. And I think more importantly, it's finding out, hearing their story and hearing about their day-to-day to find out where I can insert my, my you know, pointers and my tips and my hacks. Because, you know, are they night shift workers? Are they, uh, you know, are they fasting a lot because that's what their friends are doing right now? Do they do HIIT workouts? There's so many components and it's so multifactorial that it's hard to just give them specific tips. Uh, but I usually start off with protein, fat, and vegetable with every meal. And I recommend eating less carbs for dinner. So that's where I usually, those are my first two pointers. And I slowly introduce other concepts. Okay. So great tips. So protein, fat, um, and carbs with dinner, meaning no naked carbs. So you're, you're combining all no those foods. And again, everything has carbs. So it's kind of hard to also introduce them to that concept because they're reading labels and especially the South Asians, everything has carbs in their diet. So it was, it's, it's a very hard concept for them to understand, but to just break it down, protein, fat, and vegetable with every meal that keeps you sati- satiated and uh, you're really, you won't even end up snacking in between meals. Okay. So I got the, the nuance there. When you say vegetable, you're actually saying the non-starchy carbs or the vegetables <laughs> is what you should be aiming yeah. for for dinner, which is great advice because we've found that there seems to be a time component to uh, glycemic response and that you're pointing this out for dinner. That is the time when, when for a lot of our members, when we look across all the data, they are spiking as their, that evening meal. Yes. Yes. And then of course, walking after every meal, whether it's putting the dishes away or doing laundry, something going out for a walk with your spouse or partner, whichever it is, just, you know, small things like that. But yes, again, that is that. Yeah. That's one of the tips that Cygnus we recommend a lot within our activities is just getting some movement after meals. And this is one of the really cool things about wearing a CGM is you can see how just a walk after eating something that has a a moderate amount of carbs can really reduce your glycemic response to that meal. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's shocking, especially with the app that you guys have designed quite shocking and it catches it right at the right time. And I'm like, all right, I'm going for my walk. I'm so sorry. I have to cut this conversation short. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So I, I wonder with your patient population, with just those suggestions, how how many people are able to get their glucose below pre-diabetic levels with just those 
basic suggestions? So uh, that's a great question. So I would say a decent amount of them, if I have the time to explain the actual details and, you know, the nuances to the changes in their diet. Uh, but I would say, so I usually, even if they're, they're, uh, categorized under pre-diabetic or diabetic, I always give them a three-month trial before I even consider metformin or any medication. Um, I would say at least 20 to 30% change, but you know, a lot of people also have genetics working against them, lifestyle, cultural factors. So it's really hard to evoke these changes, um, sustainable changes, I would say. And that's where I'm struggling and learning more about how, you know, continuous glucose monitoring or having patients understand their body more, their specific body, not the general consensus that, of information that we're giving out to people. Um, introducing them to those concepts, I think it's making more of a difference. And I think you said something so important there, which is sustainable changes. I wonder how many of your patients go off the deep end, go complete keto, try and eliminate every carb from their diet. Uh, but then some some might find it's so unsustainable that they, they just give up that effort. Has that been your experience? Yeah. Very much so. I cannot tell you the number of patients of mine that have lost 100, 120 pounds, uh, keto, bariatric surgery, whatever it is. And then they, they gain it back because they don't have a lifestyle in place to implement these changes on a, you know, a long-term um, situation. And, you know, whether it's, oh, I lost weight, I can eat this again, or, oh my God, my friends are going out, I'm going to have a couple of drinks or whatever it is. They, I think implementing these hacks are way easier on a day-to-day than to starve yourself fast for 24 hours, whatever, you know, things that they're doing, whether it's paleo, keto, um, there are a couple of new ones out there, these reset programs that people are all doing, which have barely any food. Um, and so they're doing that, but then 30 pound weight loss, and then it's a 60 pound weight gain. So it's almost like double. Yeah. Because as we've seen, and I think it was the biggest loser study that we've talked about before, on uh, on this show that you can actually slow your metabolism down by doing these crash diets, which then when you go back to eating the way you were, you've now got the issue that your metabolism is is has been ground to a halt because of the few calories that you've been giving your body. It's just so fascinating exactly. to me. I, I wonder in your clinical experience, does conversations about stress and sleep come into play? for these same patients? Yeah. After I got trained in obesity medicine, I also promote, you know, getting at least seven hours of sleep as well as stress reduction. Because uh, even in my own experience, after wearing Cygnos, I realized how, how stress can play a role. That was also another aha moment for me. And I, I was just shocked because there's so many times in the day I felt the same way. And because I was not wearing Cygnos, I'm wondering how many glucose spikes I probably had in my lifetime just from not eating, but just under like overwhelmed or anxious. Right. It's, it's really quite fascinating. All these interdependencies that yes, for a lot of people, you can get there with just your, your two um, diet hacks or, or nutrition hacks, I should say, because they're not diets. Uh, but then there's all these other things that can come into play that can really help people out. Um, and it, I yeah. can see where it'd be a challenge seven, eight minutes uh, how could you possibly get to any of these topics? Exactly. Uh, sleep specifically with, you know, the ghrelin hormone being uh, increased, causing you to be hungrier. So I've noticed it even on my night shift. Now, when I go back to the times in residency, 
post night shift, I would just want a carb heavy burger. I, yeah. I remember those days were eating like, I remember heating up like frozen dumplings before like going to bed and getting ready for the next morning. It was terrible. So it's such a terrible day. Yeah. I, you know, I know our listeners can probably identify with that. It's not just the groan. It's also that, uh, if you don't get good sleep, you can uh, suppress your, your leptin, which is your satiety hormone. So that it's like the one, two punch. You're, you're hungry and this ghrelin that's now circulating in your system is actually causing you to crave some some more food and, and carbs which are the things that are going to spike you um exactly. oh boy wow so yeah i want to mm-hmm. switch topics um quick to to something that that we had talked about when we were getting ready for this podcast and that is that one of your interests is in the incidence of of diabetes in south asian populations uh, like I said, we touched on this briefly. The first time I heard about this, right away my mind went to, well, in, in South Asian populations, there's a lot of white rice, um, so maybe that's responsible. But then I saw some studies that show that there is no correlation between BMI and the incidence of diabetes in this population, which then, I guess, kind of makes you think, is there a genetic component that's um, responsible for what we're seeing here? So I'd, I'd love to know... Um, what you know about the incidence of diabetes in South Asian populations? Yes, we as South Asians have a lot going against us. Not only do we have genetics, we also have a lot of visceral or truncal fat. Um, and then again, our lifestyle and cultural factors, our diet composed of you know uh, roti, which is wheat, uh, rice, lentils. It's very, very carb focused. And, you know, we lead a very sedentary lifestyle. That's just a fact. And, you know, in addition to that, we have now the World Health Organization actually in, cut or lowered the cutoffs for BMIs for South Asians. For, you know, uh, the for a normal um, average American, it is uh, 25, above 25 is overweight, above 30 is obese. And now for South Asians, we are using the 23 and 25 cutoff for the overweight and obese. Um, Sorry, it's 25 and 27.5 for the overweight and obese cutoff. So just the fact that we are now acknowledging that the cutoffs are different for South Asians versus Americans, I think there's, it's a great, we're we're heading in the right direction for sure. Uh, There's actually a Masala trial, which is being done in San Francisco uh, to focus on all these risk factors specifically for South Asians. It's a longitudinal study. It's it's the largest longitudinal study to date. Yeah. So just to clarify, when we say South Asians, we're talking about India, Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, um, Sri Lanka, any other countries uh, yes, those I think those are pretty much all of them that they fall under. Correct? So not necessarily Southeast Asian, more the South Asian is where we're finding this. And from the research that you've studied, do we know how much of it is genetic and, and then the other factors like lifestyle and diet or are, is it still too nascent for us to, to know? I think it's still too early, but, you know, at least we're seeing these trends where, I mean, my father passed away at 57 from a heart attack. And now knowing everything that I do know, I'm like, well, he definitely had metabolics. I can almost like list all of his health conditions and everything that was working against him. And of course, those are things that he was doing. He, he did follow the poor diet, but then he also had genetics working, you know, against him. So just that combined, uh, we are just overall, um, you know, at a worse, worse situation than the average individual. 
Yeah. And when you say metabolic syndrome, it's, it's the combination of having that abdominal fat, the, um, uh, the high blood pressure, the high blood cholesterol, the high glucose. Am I, I'm missing one, I think. Uh, LDL, triglycerides, triglycerides. circumference. That's the one I missed, yeah, <laughs> triglycerides. So now with your patients, um, when you have patients from from South Asia, do you follow a different protocol or do you spend more time uh, making sure that their glucose is, is stable? Well, I follow the, you know, the same protocol, which is, you know, checking their A1C every three months. But in addition to that, uh, you know, I cook a lot of South, you know, in food at home. And so I've developed recipes or followed, you know, certain uh, bloggers that have made recipes that actually taste good. I think the issue that we all have is that we want to eat our naan, but, you know, we're not willing to settle for some plastic non-equivalent. Right. And so I have tested a lot of recipes and I think I figured out a few good ones. So I usually share those with them and, uh, you know, a lot of just random snacks that they can get on Amazon or from Whole Foods. Uh, there's been a huge wave and I mean, there's so many new products out there that actually taste good. Um, so, you know, I'm also working on a product, uh, called the healthy Snickers bar with dates, uh, peanut butter. It's covered in dark chocolate with some sea salt. So I tell them about that recipe. It's a great way to like, you know, get that last fix in after you eat your vegetables and, um, you know, your, your, uh, vegetables, protein, and then incorporating a sweet after that. Yes. And if I can add a hack to your hacks, uh, one that I was sure. guilty of, of not hacking correctly was I'd wait like uh, an hour sometimes after having dinner to have that, that dessert, that little sweet treat. And I found a huge difference when I ate my dessert immediately following dinner because I was having the proteins and the fats and the vegetables in combination with the carb, with the dessert an hour later, I was essentially having a naked carb and a huge spike, of course, right before sleep, which is the last time when you want a spike. Yeah, like so you get that double spike and anything. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, so I usually go for my dessert right after my meal and then I stop. After And walk. Take a walk. And walk. And walk. Yes, my husband thinks it's crazy. I'll like walk around the living room while watching TV. <laughs> um, and I was really Martin, which is where I went off the deep end because whenever I go back there, it's all nostalgic food full of carbs. And like one of our famous uh, dishes there is called a Johnny cake and it's essentially fried bread and dough. And I would eat it plain and the spike was unreal. And I told myself, I'm just not going to look at it until later because I was wearing the Cygnos at the time. And, um, you know, it, it was wild to see how, how high it flew with just a naked carb. But, you know, after that, I was like, Hey mom, can we like walk around the table at this restaurant? Because it feels normalize it. It's like, why are we normalizing just walking around the table after dinner? Like why? Cause then you just sit there and you talk and then you pay the bill. And it's like such a lengthy process. And in my mind, I'm like thinking about all these like mechanisms that are happening in my body. I'm like, I just need to go walk. <laughs> yeah. That is a challenge, especially with a big dinner out is extricating yourself. Yeah. Good for you for walking around the table. I don't know. Um, how my wife would feel about me just getting up and walking around the table uh, in a restaurant, but good for you for getting that movement. Yeah, I've I've 
been experimenting. There was a study that came out, I forgot where it came out from, about just doing uh, calf raises to uh, moderate glycemic response. And so my latest hack that I've been trying, and I encourage our listeners to try, is that if you are in that social situation, it's kind of hard for you to get up and walk around the table in the restaurant. Just doing calf raises seated um, during and after your meal might be enough. Just that little bit of movement might be enough. I saw that study too. It's quite interesting, you know, with the hacks that we're developing and I can't imagine what our, uh, you know, what, how we're going to be treating patients in 10 years from now. Yeah. And an interest of full disclosure, I think it was something like 40 minutes of calf raises. So it's not like you just do like <laughs> 10 and be done. Yeah, so okay. you're pretty much doing it the entire meal, but something to try. Had a well something right to, to just burn off that sugar right away. Absolutely. So we, um, in prepping for this episode, I realized that you had an interest also in treating skin conditions and had yeah. you, you, you've, um, you believe there's some connection between glucose and, and things like acne. A hundred percent. I cured my acne with just nutrition. I had pimples literally everywhere. And uh, when I think about it, you know, of course there's dairy, which I was drinking a full glass of milk and eating a cheese toast on my way to school every morning. So very high glycemic foods and just cutting that down when I discovered that was a potential cause, uh, my skin cleared up in about three months. It was, it was crazy to see just by introducing more, you know, uh, fiber and nutrient dense products. In addition to that, I do think that, you know, just high sugar content or, you know, glucose spikes can also lead to you know, insulin resistance, PCOS, uh, and, diff- and a- acne from other uh, forms. So the insulin resistance can lead to more testosterone, which can then lead to more acne. And it can also increase sebum production, causing, you know, clogged pores, inflammation, and then acne that way. Yeah. And when you mentioned that I was doing some of my own research and um, I came upon this topic of um, glycation, and the fact that yeah. that could uh, actually cause some skin aging, which I had no idea about. Can you tell us a little bit about glycation? Sure. It's when the sugar molecules binds to proteins such as elastin and collagen, and that causes them to you know, disrupt their normal um, cellular processes. And it leads to a molecule called advanced glycation end product, also known as AGES. And these products basically disrupt and cause, uh, you know, wrinkles, uh, fine lines, decreased elastin, skin sagging, also known as like the sugar sag that people have been referring to online. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about, you know, all the products and all the things that we're all doing to try and prevent aging, but no one's just looking at what they're eating. Nobody. I mean, we're slowly starting to trend in that, in the right direction, but I can even speak for, you know, people I hang around with, whether it's family, friends, it's just keep, we just want to indulge. We just think, you know, the 80, 20 rule, I still believe in that, but I mm. think there's more to it. And when I did follow a really strict diet, I remember for my wedding, I remember my skin was glowing. Like I, I saw a physical difference in the texture of my skin. And a lot of that may have been the sugar part of your diet, possibly. Yes. Yes. And so, Absolutely. um, some great advice there. If, if you've got acne, um, try, uh, Paying attention to your glucose, especially Cygnos members, if that's been an issue, see if lowering uh, your spikes and, and keeping your average glucose lower uh, helps you with reducing acne. And as a benefit, you might actually get better skin as you um, as you 
limit the amount of glycation that's going on in your skin from all that added sugar. Yes, exactly. So I want to get to uh, my favorite topic with practitioners. You've been wearing Cygnos for a while. Yes. I wonder. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious what your first aha moment was from Cygnos. Uh, my first one was when I had my oat milk latte. I was just shocked. And I've been having that pretty much every morning for as long as I can remember. And I was stunned. And I was like, oh, my we're never buying oat milk again. We're switching to almond milk right away. Like, this, and we were in Dubai at the time. I was just mind blown. Is this what is this a latte that you got at a um, like a coffee shop? Uh, at the restaurant, it was at the hotel we were staying at, one of the breakfasts, mm-hmm. and um, it just—I mean, it was the first thing I had in the morning. And I, there was no sugar, no maple syrup, no nothing else was in there. It was just you know a shot of espresso and some oat milk, just a splash. It was enough to cause a like a, sh- a very sharp peak and decline. Um, and after that, I was like, I'd rather just drink black coffee than yeah. have oat milk. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm a coffee connoisseur, so I, I applaud the black coffee. Uh, but I've I've actually played around with this uh, oat latte um, spike, and yeah. oh, I, I found yeah. personally that it's it's very dependent on the oat milk that you're using. That mm. there are some some brands that include a lot of added sugar within their oat milk. If you can eliminate those, you might still get a spike from the oat milk itself. And this, I, I found it, it, it varies by individual. We've got some members that don't spike at all from oat milk and some that do. But... Um, and this is hard when you're you're at a hotel or a restaurant or at a cafe, but when you're making your own drinks, if you can just look at the cart and see what's the added sugar in this particular oat milk, that's a, a, yes, that's- a great first step to at least reducing the spike somewhat. I'll add, you know, another one that's kind of interesting, My one of my first aha moments was I thought that eating whole wheat was the way to go. And I would just grab the whole wheat off the shelf. And it was actually one of my, um, uh, one of our, our, our co-founders, actually the founder of the company, Sherem, who loves to bake. He told me, Hey, Bill, when you, uh, when they bake wheat bread, they add sugar to help the bread rise. So everyone thinks that wheat bread is the healthier option. If you're going to eat wheat, Again, look at the label on the back and see what the added sugars are. And sure enough, the one that I had grabbed had like 8, 10 grams of added sugar per slice. Yeah. And it was just part of the baking process. They weren't trying to make it sweeter. It just was required. So, yeah, those, those little things, those little hidden things can cause spikes like you found in your oat milk. Yes, yes. Another one was sushi. I was pleasantly oh. surprised with no spike with sushi, like barely anything. If anything, it was a little hump. Um, and whether it was the vinegar in the sushi rice or, you know, resistant starch, I don't know if it was rice from the day before, whatever it was, I was like, I'm in for sushi. I'm down for sushi every day of the week, if that's the case. <laughs> Not everyone has had that experience. Um but oh, I, yeah, I've heard this from several people. I, I actually have not had the um, advantage of the non-sushi spike 
But I think for those that do um, do well on sushi, I think you're right. I think it's those two things. It's the added vinegar to the rice. And uh, we've talked about on this podcast uh, our apple cider vinegar experiment. This is kind of an extension of that. So having a little bit of apple cider vinegar, a tablespoon or two before having a carb can reduce your spike. Well, in sushi rice, a lot of sushi rice does contain vinegar uh, as just part of, of being sushi rice, and that can reduce your uh, glycemic impact. But the other fascinating one is resistant starch. So if you cook rice and then cool it, oftentimes it starts building resistant starch, which lowers your spike. So it could be, for you, it it, it apparently really works. So yeah, that's the great yeah. thing, are finding the foods that work for you. So instead of telling a, your patients, you just have to cut, up all, cut out all carbs, go full on keto, not sustainable, when you have a CGM, you can start testing these things. So if you haven't tested yes. sushi yet, do it. Do it. Yes, to. exactly. Yeah. Um, another one was when I was in a heated discussion with my husband and my sugar started rising and then Cygnos warned me, telling me to go exercise. And I literally was like, we need to stop talking, right? <laughs> like, I can't have this conversation. I need to go for a walk. It's affecting my cortisol levels. Like I'm seeing it in action. And then that was also a, a huge aha moment, not just for me, but just for all my patients that are, you know, in stressful situations, jobs, family, whatever their, their situation is, is just really finding ways to, to decompress and to relax. And it's, it's definitely hard even for myself, but you know, whether it's exercise, yoga, meditation, you know, reading a book, a funny show, anything to get your stress level down. That is, I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's such a great suggestion. And I've seen that as well. In fact, just before we started, we had a technical difficulty and I was looking at my, I've got my complication on my Apple Watch that's the Cygnos data. And sure enough, my, my glucose is going up like 130, 140. It's like, how do I fix this? I can't talk to her. I, I don't know how to fix this. And, and luckily, we got it all working. But it's just another example of how something as little as stress and, you know, understanding when you're feeling stressed and then doing things. It could be as simple as um, a breathing exercise. I've uh, had members tell me that just on the Apple Watch, there's that free part of the Apple Watch, the Breathe um, app. Yes. Just doing, you know, a five-minute Breathe session with the Apple Watch, or there's so many different free and, and paid apps out there for meditation. You mentioned yoga. And maybe it's just the distraction, uh, like you said, of watching a comedy, laughing a little bit. Uh, the combination of walking, just getting out in nature, I think, is a wonderful way um, to reduce stress levels and get some movement at the same time. Same for yoga. That those those things, it's it's not just uh, what you're eating. It's it's a little bit more than that, which to me is exciting because it's more levers that we can pull, uh, and some of them very easy lever, levers and pleasurable ones to reduce stress and and. Uh, get back to a healthy glucose level. Yes, yes, absolutely. I can't imagine, you know, just whether it was in residency or any stressful moments in my job, how many times my glucose actually spiked in a day. I, I wish... I wish everyone can find out, you know, what it is that's causing stress in their life and pinpointing it to realize, because when you see those numbers on the monitor, you're, I mean, that itself is an eye opener and that's enough for me to want to make changes in my life. Absolutely. Yeah. Very well said. So these are some great, um, 
glucose aha moments. I, I think you, you've kind of you've covered all of like the the top areas. So um, I hope that our listeners uh, look into some of these as well for themselves and see if uh, if they check in with their Cygnos when they're having a stressful moment or just they can't explain a high glucose number. Perhaps it's stress. Maybe it's not something you're eating. You get that movement and. I think really important as we're talking about these experiments and you know, the fact that you found that sushi rice is like your your go to now. Um, it's the idea of playing with your food when you have a um, you have that access to signals to see what spikes you and what doesn't. Um, if you don't experiment, you may not find some of the things that really work well for you. So. Yes. And I know I played around with oatmeal. Oatmeal did not work for me, no matter what I did to it. It definitely just spiked me. But I know that you've you've done quite a few experiments with oatmeal. So I keep saying I am going to get through one episode of Body Signals without talking about oatmeal. But <laughs> this is what, episode 37, and I'm going to talk about oatmeal. <laughs> but yes, that so that was my aha moment is that that doctor visit that I told you about where my doctor said you've... Um, you're, you're borderline pre-diabetic, you got to lose weight. So I did some research, and this is a couple of years ago. One of the top suggestions I found was, well, have a heart-healthy breakfast, because I was also interested in lowering my cholesterol, and it recommended oatmeal. So I'd been eating an oatmeal for a while before I actually um, uh, started with Cygnos, and I think my first morning with a sensor on, I went up to 180 on that bowl of oatmeal, um, which I gave it up for a while. But then I came back to it. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to engineer this oatmeal so it works for me. So at, just like you were saying, by adding things uh, to your meal, like fats and proteins, I added uh, almond butter. I added chia seeds. Um, I didn't put greens in because it was not, um, not a savory oatmeal. But um, I found that just by adjusting the things in the oatmeal itself, and even um, portion size was another huge lever. So you could just reduce the portion size by a bit and have a huge effect. I, I now can eat oatmeal with no uh, glycemic effect at all. Which Whoa, none. No. That's, yeah. Oh, I'd love to know the exact recipe. I'll try that. Yeah, and it's going to be different for everyone, but I'll tell you exactly what it is. So it's a tablespoon of uh, almond butter. I used Barney's, the non-sugar um, version. Love that one. That's a great one. Uh, I put two tablespoons of chia seeds, a tablespoon of flaxseed meal. Um, I put some uh, walnuts, whole walnuts on top. I eliminated the banana, but if I really feel like a banana, I'll have a slightly green banana in that oatmeal. To, mm. And the greener the banana, the less the glycemic impact for most people. But that's essentially it. Uh, and some some blueberries. Blueberries don't spike me at all. So I can put a whole handful of blueberries in there to give it some sweetness without having the spike. So there you go. That's great. And yet we're going to rename this show uh, Body Oatmeal or <laughs> Oatmeal Signals. Yes, I, I love talking about oatmeal. Well, Doc, is such a pleasure having you on Body Signals. Um, Thank you where so can much. people find really? you if they want to learn more about you? 
well, I have an Instagram page. It's do you by Dr. You. Uh, you can also find me on my website, do you by Dr. You, where I'm accepting new patients, uh, focusing on weight loss, both with medications as well as just with nutrition. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Body Signals. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to our feed. Also, please share this episode with your friends. For those of you who are not yet Signos members, go to signos.com, S-I-G-N-O-S.com, and use the code BODYSIGNALS, all one word, to get your 15% discount on Signos. We look forward to seeing you on our next episode of Body Signals.